This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That to be joined on Football CFB by a Republic of Ireland international, a man who's played at a major tournament, has worked under some great managers, played for some some great and historic football clubs, as we'll come to as well. Simon Cox, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure, no problem. How are you? I'm very good, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this chat because you've you've had a very interesting career. As we speak at the moment, you're you're playing out in, a, in, in Australia, you're with Western Sydney Wanderers, what's what's life in Australia been like for you, and how much are you enjoying your football there? It's been great. It's a it's been a little stop start because of COVID and stuff, but um, ultimately it's uh, it's been great. The obviously the weather's the weather helps, um, and the fact that we're pretty much back to normal in terms of COVID and stuff. Uh, it, it helps your, your mental state, which is great. And, and the, the club have been great. Uh, the lads are, are doing really well at the minute. So that's, that's always, always good. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's been a really good um, journey so far. There's a few familiar faces at the club this season. Um, you've got Kenny Miller coaching. You've got Graham Dorrance, who's a former Premier League player as well. Jordan Much is another. Ziggy Gordon, obviously, I know well from, from his time in Scotland. Um, Dylan McGowan, another. There's there's just so many familiar names this year in particular. Th- does that help you? And I know, obviously, it's an English-speaking country, but does it help to have people who have experienced the same levels of football as you in and around the squad and the coaching staff? Yeah, absolutely. I think that just shows the the lure of the A League right now, and especially Sydney. Uh, so that that obviously helps bring quality into into the country, into the A League, and and obviously to Wanderers as well. So uh, it's it's great to have, especially with the likes of Doran's uh, familiar people that I know, um, who I know who how he plays and and who you know, what he is, what he's about and what he's like as a person as well. So that's always good. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just been a really good, like I say, really good journey so far. In terms of yourself, you came through the system at Reading. Um, you were there for a number of years. You had loan spells at Brentford, Northampton and Swindon, which then turned into a permanent move. What was Reading like uh, in terms of a football upbringing? Really good. Uh, really, really good, actually. The, I had I had Brendan Rogers as a coach, Eamon Dolan as a coach, obviously who's sadly no longer with us. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a great upbringing. Got taught to play football the right way, um, how to to be a, a good person uh, off the off the field because you're representing a a club that was doing really well at the time, um, and then. Uh, and then, yeah, it was it was just a, an all-round good education of football. In terms of those initial loan spells that I, I mentioned with Brentford and Northampton in particular, what were those spells like? Because they, they were shorter spells than, than the Swindon loan spell that you go on to have. 
Yeah, the Brentford one, um, it was it was really strange actually because I went as a central midfield player um, because at the time uh, in the youth team at Reading and the reserve team at Reading, I would either play up front or, or in central midfield. So they didn't really know what kind of player I was. So they they sort of, they sent me out as a central midfield player to see if that was where you know I would have a career. Um, didn't really work out that way, and then obviously end up going to Northampton um, and Swindon as a as a striker, and that's where I sort of started to make my name really. And in terms of the the loan spell initially at Swindon, you go there in the two thousand and seven two thousand and eight season. There's a few changes behind the scenes. Paul Sturrock's the manager, David Burns and caretaker charge. Morris Malpass comes in as well. It was a sort of turbulent season in terms of managerial change, but for you, you finished top scorer in the league and in all competitions. So was it a season that you really enjoyed that initial load? Yeah, I think especially off the back of um, after going to Northampton uh, the end of the season before and and scoring my first couple of goals in in that team, um, when the season came to an end at the wrong time for me and then knowing that that was what I wanted to do in terms of scoring goals and playing as a striker. I knew that when I came back to to Reading in the in the off season, um, I knew I had to go out on loan again. So going to to Swindon as a as a striker and and scoring goals, that was where ultimately I knew I was I was the happiest and um, and even with the change of managers and uh, and what was going on behind the scenes at the club at the time, it wasn't in a great place, but. For me, that didn't really matter. I was more interested of of making myself, uh, making a name for myself, and and scoring goals and helping the team try and be successful. You you play very well on loan. That ends up becoming a permanent move, and, and you stay with Swindon for the next season. I've got to ask you about Billy Painter. Lots of people talk about was a big character, but I imagine he's much more than that because, to his credit, he was a good player as well. Uh, he was, yeah, and he was great. For, he was great for me. Um, Great, you know, always up for a laugh and a laugh and a joke, and always the one at the at the front of most jokes as well, and um, <laughs> most pranks as well. So, uh, but you know, he he was the the kind of person, and and in, even in that team was the was he was probably the best best strike partner for me at that time because. You know, he was the, the big centre forward that took all the, the bumps and bruises. I was the one who ran in behind and then we would both sort of be in the box for, for anything that that dropped. And um, and at that time, we struck up a big rapport and, and it was great and it seemed to work really well. What was Danny Wilson like as a manager? Because he, he's, a, he's a manager who has obviously managed in the Premier League. He's He's got a really a reputation for being a, a, a manager who sticks to his beliefs and is very strict and stubborn with them. What what was he like to work with? Because again, in that season at Swindon, where you're there permanently, you double the number of goals that you scored and again, finished top scorer in the league, but also in all competitions as well. Yeah, he was great. He came in at a, a time where, you know, Morris had, had sort of left and Dave Byrne had taken over for a little bit, wanted to throw his name in the hat, but probably wasn't the right time for him. And then we end up appointing Danny Wilson and, and it was a bit of a scoop, really, um, taking somebody like him, who, like you said, managing the Premier League, had pedi- uh, Premier League pedigree in terms of managerial uh, success, and uh, he was he was great. He, I think, one of one of his first training sessions, we put on a passing drill, and and the the ball was going 
astray a little bit and he, he sort of brought everyone together and he was basically like, look, if you don't want to do it, if you don't want to do it properly and if you're not going to do it with quality, just go home. Like, because ultimately it will be everyone that fails. I'll, I'll get the sack. You won't get another club um, and then we'll, we won't be successful. So you might as well, while you're here, you might as well do it do it right and and that sort of brought everybody together and made sure that we you know every training session was was done with quality and done with with um with everybody being at it and and making sure that we were uh, we were you know doing it at the best of our ability you scored three hat-tricks for Swindon you finish um that that permanent season and as the the joint top scorer in all four divisions of English football alongside Ricky Lambert who went on to have a very good career like yourself lots of interest in you from other clubs how did you handle that at the time? Was it incredibly exciting when when clubs such as Leicester City, who were rumoured, West Brom, of course, who you join, and, and others were were desperate to sign you? Yeah, it was. It became a little bit of a, a running joke. To be fair, like every day I would walk into the to the ground because we used to train uh, change at the ground, go there for breakfast and lunch, and uh, and then drive up to the uh, the training ground. So every day there would be like the press and stuff. Uh, somebody would be doing the press and and then all of a sudden they would come and talk to me just in passing or, or even if I was doing the press and they would they would just turn around and say like oh by the way you're linked with x y and z today and and to be honest it didn't really matter to me at, at that time I was more interested of just doing doing well and scoring goals I think there was always in the back of my mind I knew that the summer was a big summer. Um, uh, what whatever was going to happen, um, and obviously the likes of the clubs that were were interested in me was um, were, were great, and it was the the caliber of clubs that were interested was, you know, something that you'd never really thought about as a as a player. Um, but it was one of those that it was just really really exciting time. Uh, every every day was some someone new, some someone new was chipping in with their. Uh, with their two p and and just making their their comment on it and um, but no it was it was it was an exciting time and it, and one I, I actually really enjoyed. In terms of West Brom, in the end, why did you do, decide to join West Brom? Because ultimately, the, the championship season that you go there a successful year in promotion was Roberto Di Matteo a big factor in that because obviously he'd nurtured players at MK Dons. Um, previously before going to, to West Brom. So was he a factor in deciding to go there in the end? Well, I had three clubs um, that were were there pretty much all the way through who were chasing chasing for me to sign. And it was it was West Brom, Newcastle and Celtic. And um, so Tony Mowbray was a manager at West Brom. He then left and went to Celtic. Um, Newcastle had just been relegated alongside West Brom and they didn't have it like Alan Shearer was the manager at the time and he obviously got he was the person in charge who who um when when Newcastle got relegated but he didn't take the manager's job so they didn't have a manager West Brom didn't have a manager after um after they got relegated uh because Tony Mowbray went to Celtic so and then Tony Mowbray was the only ma- only person out of all of his coaching staff and um, and scouts and director of football at West Brom who didn't want to take me to West Brom. So as soon as he went to Celtic, that one sort of died. Um, and then when uh, I got the phone call from West Brom to say, 
look, we're appointing our new manager on Monday. We want you to come in on Tuesday. Um, and, and I was like, well, who is it? Because obviously you have to know if they want you as well. And, um, and they, they said that we can't tell you, we can only tell you on Monday morning um, when we're, we're just about to announce it. And I was like, fine. Um, so then it was Di Matteo and I went up on the, on the Monday evening, Monday, uh, Tuesday morning, I sat down with him and spoke to him about, you know, what type of manager he is. Does he, does he want me as well? Because ultimately he was only the manager for a short, short amount of time. Um, and then, uh, and then I ended up signing because he was the, like they had the manager. Um, if Newcastle would have had their manager and, and he wanted me, maybe the, the story would have been different. But ultimately, West Brom had their manager and, and I went there and, and they enjoyed three three good years there. What was Di Matteo like as a manager? Because a lot of people look at the, the Chelsea Champions League one and, and there's an element of people within uh, football when it comes to fans that say, was that him that was able to do that? Was that the players? Was he a talented coach, someone that was hands-on? Uh, listen, he was very new in his managerial career when he when he took over West Brom. He'd only been at MK Dons for for a season, so it was uh, it'd be very hard to say whether he's a talented coach or not. Um, listen, he went on to to lift the Champions League. How much of that was down to him, I don't know. Um, in in all honesty, I think when you look at that, I think whoever the manager was before, I can't remember at Chelsea at the time had taken Lampard and Ashley Cole and John Terry potentially out of the team. And then all of a sudden Robbie gets in and he, he puts them all back in the team and, and things start clicking again. So I don't think that was really too much rocket science to, to, to look at, but um, he would have played a part. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, he, he went on to manage Schalke after that as well. So he's obviously got something, um, so it just it was just one of them. I think really early on in his career with with West Brom, he was still trying to learn his you know what his uh, what would be his sort of management style, um, and uh, and he obviously found that a little bit later on. In terms of the promotion campaign at West Brom, you scored ten goals um, for the club that season. As I say, you're playing at a new level of football in in the Championship consistently for the first time in your career, which which is exciting. As a forward-thinking player, talk me through the quality of Chris Brunt because as a fan of football, his delivery uh, and his left foot are just second to none. Yeah, probably uh, probably one of the best left foots uh, I've played with in my career uh, between him and maybe Nicky Shore is another one. But other than that, I think he's probably, you know, he can see things. He can, you know, his delivery left-footed is is incredible um free kicks everything about him was was just quality um so yeah he was he was top top drawer and, and as a forward you knew that if you made a run or you you pulled into space he would be able to find you no problem you get promotion that season under Roberto Di Matteo it's a successful season for the club you're playing games and scoring goals as well how exciting was it for you to have the prospect of Premier League football because you were at Swindon, you were scoring goals in, in the third tier, but now, just 18 months later, not even, you've got a chance of being a Premier League footballer. It must have been an incredibly exciting moment. Yeah, it was It was really exciting, but also very surreal as well. Um, 
as you said, you go from League One football scoring goals for fun to the Championship, where you know, in and out, but but ultimately played a significant part in that season, um, ten goals, and then and then the following year, you're you're in the Premier League, and um, I, I always say that that's probably one of my biggest things I would love to to try and change if possible, like in my career, if I could ever change anything, it would be to, to spend one more year in the championship and, um, and, and, you know, go in and, and score, you know, 15, 20 goals if possible. And, um, uh, and then sort of familiarize myself with, with becoming a championship player uh, and then getting promoted that season, because I went from league one to the premier league within two seasons. And it was like, you know, you, all of a sudden you're you're on the back foot, and you've now got to up your level even more, and it, it became a lot harder. So, uh, but listen, I'd never ever change uh, playing in the Premier League at all. You, that's what the basically the pinnacle is of your career. If you can play in the Premier League, it's it's something. It's a massive achievement. So I'd never change that. But I just wanted to try and submit myself as a Championship goal scorer first and foremost, and then go and have a crack at the Premier League. In the Premier League with West Brom, Roberto Di Matteo, as you mentioned earlier, leaves his post. Roy Hodgson comes in. What's Roy Hodgson like to work with? Because he's still managing remarkably now in the Premier League at, in his 70s and, and he's, he's doing a decent enough job at Crystal Palace. He's, he's had incredible longevity and you consider the fact he goes on to manage England after West Brom. So he definitely um, was highly regarded during his time there. What was he like to work with? He was fantastic. Really, really good, actually. Um, you know, gives gives everyone their five minutes a day. Um, chats to everyone, whether it's talking about the game or the game the night before or the game coming up or how your family is or your kids or your wife or anything else like that. He, he basically just, his man management skills were, were second to none and um, one that everybody appreciated, whether you were playing or you weren't playing. Um, but... As you as you alluded to, he's uh, he's been in the game for nearly 30, 40 years or so. Um, so he's obviously doing something right, um, and he was exactly what West Brom needed at that time. We we were shipping goals and we weren't winning games, and then all of a sudden, as you said, Robbie gets Robbie gets take um, he gets moved on, and and we bring in Roy, and Roy is sort of renowned for being. Um, a manager who sets his team up who are hard to beat and don't score many goals against and uh, and he was exactly what we needed and we ended up finishing ninth under him that season so uh, so as I say he was exactly what was needed at that time Talk me through the goal against Tottenham because <laughs> goal of the yeah. month uh, nominee for, for match of the day it must have felt sweet Yeah the one and only the one and only Premier League goal but I'll take what, <laughs> the way, way it went in but it was uh I uh, listen. It was a great goal and um, and one that I uh, I cherish purely and simply because it's my only one. But uh, as well as you know who it was against and who was in the in the Spurs team at the time, and and I think that gave us forty points as well. So uh, that that meant that we were staying in the league for another season at least. So uh, so that it was always uh, it'll always stay stay in my memory. A month after that goal, you're called up to the Republic of Ireland squad for the first time under um, Giovanni Trapattoni. What was the, the the experience of international football like for you and in that initial call up? It was uh, it, 
Yeah, it was very, I was very honoured to get the call up first and foremost. And then, uh, especially for somebody like uh, Giovanni Trapattoni to to think that you're good enough to play in international football is uh, is something to be proud of first and foremost. Uh, but then, you know, to, to go and play uh, 30 times for your country and, and score a few goals and go to a major tournament and um, on the back of, as you said, like the, the big mammoth jump in 18 months or two years, two seasons to go from League One to the Premier League to international level. It was uh, it was a big jump and one that you had to sort of wake up and uh, and pinch yourself sometimes because it was uh, such a quick rise. It was a quick rise. And, and when you look at that Republic of Ireland team, some of the players in it are, are very icons that, that, that you could argue that the country are missing now. Um, the likes of Robbie Keane, of course, Damien Duff was still there, Shea Given. What were those guys like to, to play alongside? Robbie Keane in particular, for you as a forward-thinking player, was was he someone you looked up, looked up to in training every day? Yeah, somebody who I'd love to have uh, like worked under for a good few years more, uh, if, if possible, um, because... He he's very much the a similar striker to myself, and um, you know I could have learned so much more from him. And um, but no, listen, the the team that we had, you mentioned a few there, but you you throw in the likes of Richard Dunn as well as um, who was like monstrous at the back, and he would always come up with something if uh, if we were under the cosh, he'd always put his body on the line and. Um, but it was a it was an unbelievable team to to be involved with, and and some of the players that you played with were were incredible, and um, you know, like I say, one I truly cherish. Off the back of the second season at West Bromwich Albion uh, in the Premier League, that is third season altogether. You go to the Euros with the Republic of Ireland. Being a player who gets to go to a major tournament, that must fill you with immense pride because you think of some of the greats over the years that that never got the opportunity to do that. Yeah, and even more so for me because um, I'd only been in that setup for what not not even a year. Um, so uh, so it was really, 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 um, really tough to to sort of to make it make it worthwhile really in terms of like being able to see the direction that I was going in at the time and making sure that the way uh the way I took it in my stride was was tough actually because I probably thought I was taking somebody's spot but ultimately you're never ever going to pass up the opportunity to go to a, a major tournament and I remember being in the car and I got the phone call driving um and it was the it was the manager, and he was like, "You're in my squad for the uh, for the Euros," and and you sort of end up thinking, "Wow, that's like one of the best phone calls you've ever had to to receive." And um, and then to go to a major tournament and be involved in all three games, and uh, just just be involved in a tournament and the build up to the games, and you know all of that sort of stuff. It was it was just incredible to be involved in. And in terms of Trapattoni as as a man, what was he like? Because there's there's obviously the famous clips of him when he was managing Bayern Munich and in the nineties where he, he showed his incredible passion. Was it was that the way he was as a character? Was he very passionate, or because he was a wee bit older at that stage, was he was he a lot more laid back? 
yeah, he was very laid back, but because his English wasn't very good, it, it was very hard for him to to converse and um, and get that passion over. Obviously, you could see that he was a passionate man, and being an Italian as well, you, they just they just breathe passion, don't they? Um, but he, uh, but yeah, I would have loved to would love to have um, for him to be uh, a bit more or been able to speak a little bit more English because it would have been incredible to to see that passion come out. But listen, the, the other thing as well, he, he had somebody as his number two that, that sort of gets overlooked a little bit with Marco Tardelli. Um, and that's that's a World Cup winner, you know, in itself. And, and even he could converse a little bit more, which was great. And sitting down with Marco and having, you know, 10, 15 minutes talking about World Cups, talking about being in there with like Platini and things like that. And it was like, these, these are these are like people that are icons in football and you, and you get to have like five minutes chat and and just being able to, to sit down with these people is, is incredible. Absolutely. And, and as you say, getting to a major tournament is something that, <laughs> being a Scotsman, I'm, I'm 25 and we're going <laughs> to a tournament this summer for the for the first yeah. time since I was three. So that just shows you how how tough it is. And just on the year of 2012, Simon, um, you, you talked about Celtic earlier when you were at Swindon, they were interested. There was heavy interest from Celtic or the media portrayed that there was heavy interest um, from Celtic in 2012 when Neil Lennon was the manager. Was that a move that was ever close? Uh, I I don't think so. Not not in that time. Uh, because if there was, I would have taken it. I'll be honest with you. I would have I would have jumped at that chance to go, um, especially off of the back of the Euros, and uh, would have loved that uh, being a part of of the success that, that obviously Neil Lennon was starting to build and and going up there and and winning things as well. That would have been ideal for me. But I don't think it was ever that close. I don't think I ever even heard of the the interest that was um that it was concrete enough for, to to warrant a conversation. So uh which was a bit of a shame because as I said I would have jumped at that chance. Well as I say the reason I mention it is because there was a lot of links at the time and and I remember I was I remember at that time just a lot of people talking about it and a lot of Celtic fans been been interested in the possibility because it looked as if Gary Hooper was was going to leave the club to go down south, and you were seen by many as the logical replacement. But you you joined Nottingham Forest instead, a massive club, albeit they were in the Championship. They have been for a number of years, but two time European Cup winners. There's there's still a there's still a real draw to Nottingham Forest. Is that something you found as well when you joined the club? Yeah, so uh, so the way it worked out is uh, I was basically going to go to Blackburn instead um, after the Euros uh, sort of a, a agreed the deal and everything else. And um, uh, I was pretty much on my way up to Blackburn to sign the papers and everything else. And then all of a sudden, the uh, the owners who were the Venkies at the time, they they decided to change their mind and go a different direction. So, so my next, um, the next club that was interested it was very, very interested. Was was Nottingham Forest, and um, so I went to meet Sean O'Driscoll at the time, who was the manager, and um, and he was, uh, and you know, I sat down and went around the training ground and the stadium and stuff, and end up signing the Forest. But yeah, it's a it's a massive football club, as you said, European champions, and uh, you you can't help but but feel that um, 
the the wealth of experience from from being in the European Championships and winning it and um, it, it just you can just see it around the club and and uh, the older age uh, fans will always remind you that that's where the club should be and um, but the reality is at the minute that they're they're not there and and they need to get back to the Premier League first and foremost. We talked earlier about Swindon, um, about the fact you had a few managers, but the first season at Nottingham Forest, you have, <clears throat> pardon me, you have Sean O'Driscoll who, who brings you to the club. You then have Alex McLeish who is there for around five weeks or so, and then he's <laughs> gone, and then Billy Davis comes in. As a group of players, is that the the nightmare scenario where you're trying to build momentum, but as, as I mentioned, the, the manager changes, so the ideas and the philosophy of playing changes as well? Yeah, so obviously under Sean O'Driscoll, we tried to play football, which was great. We'd like play at all costs and uh, and we started off pretty well and got some decent results in the first part. Then obviously things over the Christmas period started to get a little bit, um, sort of to unwind a bit. And then Alex McLeish and Peter Grant come in, which is which was fine. But Nottingham Forest is renowned for playing good football um, and the fans demand do you play good football um, and then when obviously Alex McLeish is sort of seen as somebody who plays direct football um, the fans weren't ultimately happy and results weren't great so he as you say last didn't last two minutes really um, but then Billy Davis came in and Billy had obviously been at Derby but been at Forest and and he uh, he he came in and he was brilliant he came in and he uh, he got us to a, a position where we would we had passion, we had desire to run and 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 play and and work hard for each other, and then uh, and we missed out on the playoffs uh, by a point that that first season he came in, and then we we should really have made it in all honesty, but we sort of filtered uh, we faltered a little bit uh, towards that middle period of the, of the season, and then. Uh, uh, and then he had the full season the next year and and we just weren't anywhere near the level where we should have been. One of the, the people I want to ask you about who you played alongside, a fellow Republic of Ireland international, he was a wee bit older at that time, but he was still a quality player. Andy Reid, what was he like to play with? Yeah, top top player. Um, you know, was, again, somebody who had Premier League pedigree. You could tell that he... Uh, he wanted the ball all the time. Left, you know, his left foot was was a bit of a wand as well. He could he could pick it pass. You know, he was one of those players that uh, ultimately you would always give the ball because you knew something something could happen. Um, and uh, but yeah, like he was a he was a top player, and um, even when he was getting a little bit older, you could tell that he. Uh, he sort of moved into a central role because he, he didn't really have the pace to go past people on the wing anymore. So he ended up playing more centrally and and that sort of um, gave his game a bit more of a dynamic where he could he could thread passes through, he could uh, he could play balls over the top and ultimately he could dictate from from the middle of the park. When you look at the, the two seasons at Nottingham Forest, how do you reflect on them over the piece? Because you mentioned that under Billy Davis, when he comes in initially, you finish eighth, you're close to those playoff places. The second season, as you say, it's 11th. It's not quite where you or Billy wanted it to be um, as, as, as a group. 
how do you reflect on that overall? Because as, as much as you might express disappointment, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but you may, <laughs> you, you've got to think so many Forest teams, even now, we're still talking about Forest as being that massive club who, for whatever reason, just can't seem to get over the line. Yeah, and it's something that every manager and every player that walks through the door has to live with. Um, we we obviously look at the the two seasons that, that I was there um, playing regularly. Uh, I look at them with you know disappointment because the when you look at the team that we had, especially um, especially that first year that we uh, even to be honest, even the second year, um, we should we should have easily made the playoffs. We um, it was one of those where we let we we were the only people to let ourselves down. You know, we we didn't perform consistently enough, um, and that was the problem. Um, that's been the problem for for a number of years now. Uh, you know, I think the last time that Forest were in the playoffs was two thousand ten ish, I think, um, and that's. Uh, and that's an issue, especially for a club of that size. You, when you look at the sort of the likes of Leeds United and how long it took them to get from sort of championship, then they went down to League One, and then it was League One back into the championship. It took them a long time to get from the championship into into the Premier League, and and that this is where Forest are at the minute. They're they're in that massively transition period, but need that consistency and fluidity throughout the club. Because you can't keep changing managers, you can't keep changing 10, 12 players every transfer window because it doesn't help. Um, you need to be able to have a bit of consistency running from top to bottom and throughout the playing squad. And, and now they've got a manager and uh, under Chris Hewton who has pedigree of getting out of the championship into the Premier League. He just needs one or two windows, you know, bring bought the likes of Glenn Murray and Anthony Knockhart, who who obviously are you know, class players in, in championship and Premier League uh, at Premier League level. Um, but those two can't do it on their own. So they need the, the players around them to, to be able to to score the goals and, and help the team be successful. And under, under Chris Hute and Stephen Reid, and I feel like they've got that now. In terms of your career after Nottingham Forest, you returned to Reading. Was, was there part of you that wanted to go back there because you still had unfinished business in many ways because you'd come through the system there but you never really got a sustained run of games but maybe because of your age at the time so was was there part of you that thought I want to go there and show Reading and their fans what I'm capable of? Absolutely um, as soon as as soon as Stuart Pearce told me that I could leave and um, he wanted me to, he wanted me to be a part of the Mikhail Antonio deal from Sheffield Wednesday to Nottingham Forest and I was like no uh, if I'm going to go somewhere it's going to go I'm going to go because somebody wants me. Um, so, and then Reading, Reading came in and they were like, we, we want to take you. Um, so, and I was like, it's basically a no brainer, obviously with my family and that's still in the, uh, in the, um, in Reading. Um, it was, it was an easy decision for me to, to go back there. Um, and as you said, I haven't, I, I'd never, you know, because of my age or because of who was in front of me, I never really got a chance to to show what I could do. So when you say I was going back, I actually felt that I wasn't going back 
because I wasn't going back into the youth team. I was going back as a as a professional and and somebody who was going to play. So when uh, when I started my first game, it was actually my first start for Reading. So it, it felt like a brand new brand new club and a brand new start to to my life at, at Reading. And um, and it was one that I, you know it was a transitional period, but ultimately it was one I look back and think. You know, it was it was a really good decision to go back there. You you play in an FA well, you get to an FA Cup um, semi final. You work with um, Steve Clark, who is the current Scotland manager. What was Steve like to work with in particular? I know you go in under Nigel Atkins, but Steve Clark, obviously from a Scottish perspective, is is a man who's got a lot of credit up here for taking the nation to the Euros and the job he was able to do at Kilmarnock. What what was he like to work with as a manager? Because a lot of people have talked about being an excellent coach, but as a manager, what's he like? Yeah, well, he's I've had him twice and he's let me go twice. <laughs> so uh, so that I don't I don't really know. But as a coach, very good. As a as a person, as a manager, um, you know, not not my favourite person in the world. Um, but he, uh, I, I always, I always look at managers not necessarily as as a as a coach, but as a person. And and as a as a person, we obviously didn't get on that well. Um, but I I totally respect his his opinion and um, uh, and what he is as a coach. Um, he's just just not the the type of person that I uh, <laughs> I like to to be with or be around. And in terms of that relationship not working under Steve Clark, Steve Clark eventually leaves the club. You have Brian McDermott who comes in who has managed the club before. Seems like a completely different character to Steve Clark. From an outsider looking in as well, Brian McDermott always seems like quite a shy guy, but when you speak to people within the game, they say he's not at all. No, very knowledgeable man. Uh, done pretty much every role from academy level all the way up to chief scout and, and manager at Reading as well and and, and uh, other clubs. But he's, uh, I think, I think when Steve left because obviously he had the the Fulham thing and that he went to talk to, then he went back to Reading and then obviously things didn't work out and uh, then he ends up leaving and then Brian comes in. I think when they appointed Brian, I think they, they expected him to be able to turn the, when he got Reading promoted the last time, um, whatever year that was, um, I think they were expecting that to happen straight away and and because of the the way that Reading was at the time and, and the personnel that we had in the dressing room, we didn't have that sort of team. So we had a lot of foreign players um, because we had foreign owners and we had, you know, foreign directors of football and stuff like that. It, it brought in foreign imports, which is, which is fine. Um, but they have to get, they have to get on board with the, the hard work and stuff like that. And sometimes they don't. Um, and that was where we got let down a little bit and, and probably let Brian down. But, we, you know, we made FA Cup semi-final under, under Steve um, and then we made FA Cup quarterfinals, I think, under Brian the year after. So we we were pretty good, even still uh, under Brian. It just uh, it just didn't work out in the long term. You, you mentioned it not working out in the long term, and, and Reading again at a club like Nottingham Forest, who have been in the Premier League before. They obviously want to get back there, but it's easier said that, than done, as we both know. 
for you, after Reading, you joined Southend United and Phil Brown, a big character, I'm excited to ask you about Phil in a second. Phil described you, yourself as uh, being a player of outstanding pedigree. He said, we've been working long and hard towards this signing and I cannot thank my chairman enough for pushing this through. Signing Simon Cox is a real coup for me and this football club. Does that sum up the faith he had in you? Yeah, I think I needed to pay him for that that comment as well. <laughs> Uh, he, he was great. He was great, actually, because at the time uh, when I left Reading or my contract finished at Reading, I wasn't really blessed with a lot of offers, um, which, you know, took me back a bit, to be honest with you. I was I was a little bit surprised, but I was at the age of 29 or 30 at the time and hadn't played that many games in the last sort of year or so um, because obviously I've fallen out with managers or people not picking me or going to, you know, I went on a little loan spell at Bristol City that didn't work out. And uh, so I hadn't played that often. So I understood why some clubs weren't really open to taking me because I hadn't played. But also I thought because of what I'd potentially done previous, I thought I'd, I'd have a few few clubs look at look at taking me. But Phil, Phil phoned me up one day and he was like, would you come down for a chat? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and he's a very good salesman. Um, loves loves to talk and 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 promise things. And and he was great. And I think maybe the uh, the preseason trip to Marbella maybe swayed my decision. But uh, but no, he was he was great and somebody who was who was uh, interesting to work under. When you look at where Southend are now, that first season, well, the season under Phil Brown. You finished seventh in League One. That's an incredible achievement when you consider where the club are now, as I've said. And you were the top goal scorer that season. What was it like playing under Phil when you're scoring goals like that? Is he the sort? Because from the outside looking in, he seems like a guy who is a motivator. When he was at Hull City, he seemed to have a great rapport with the fans, a great rapport with the players. And when things are going well, he seems like a manager who's the perfect guy to keep that ticking over on a weekly basis. Yeah, well. The, the sort of flip coin to that is when things aren't going so well, that's when you, you get the, uh, the the horrible side of Phil Brown. So, but in, the, in my first year, we didn't really, we didn't really have that, that bad period. We had a little, we had a little blip at the start of the season where we didn't win too many games and, and things weren't, weren't working out, but we then stumbled along alongside a system where we sort of played, we played four at the back and we played, we, we sort of played 4-4-2, but we played four at the back and we played a really narrow right winger. Uh, and then we had our left winger play out wide. So we were a lopsided sort of 4-4-2. Um, and we stumbled across this system that basically just turned around and was like, we're going to work hard. We're going to deliver crosses into the box. We're going to score goals. And we're going to be very solid enough at the back that we'd win games. And, and we went on a mad run of something like three defeats in 27, um, which I think is incredible for, for that level. And we just got to a point at the end of the season where we ran out of steam a little bit. Um, but we hold, you know, we, we, we pull no punches in the dressing room. We, we turn around and say we should, we should 100% have got into the playoffs that season. Well, 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 as you say, you, you probably should have got into the playoffs, but even so, when when you look at where the club are now, as I say, it's it's something that I'm sure Southend fans will look back on fondly that season in particular. We've talked about some of the big characters you've played with so far, and the next guy I'm going to ask you about 
I'm interested to get your perspective. I've heard so much about him from uh, what you hear in the media, so I don't know if any of it's accurate. Niall Ranger, is he as crazy as he's made out to be? <laughs> Do you know what, right? One of the one of the players I've played with um, who should really have had a much better career than he than he does than he's had um, because talent level he's he's up there because he's he's big he's strong he's powerful he's he's not slow at all he's he's actually quite quick um, but it's it's the off the field stuff that lets him down um, and and we had a big. This is where Phil Brown came into it, really. Phil Brown came in and he was like, he he wanted to try and change Niall. He wanted to try and change him in terms of like his lifestyle and everything else. Um, and we had a big task in the dressing room. Myself, Michael Timlin, uh, Anton Ferdinand all, all had a big task of trying to keep him on the straight and narrow as much as we could, as well as making sure that the rest of the dressing room was led by example and made sure that nobody got away of anything. Um, because the best, the best dressing rooms in the world, everyone pulls in the same direction. And we try to do that with Niall um, in terms of the fine system, in terms of making sure he was accountable for his punctuality, in terms of uh, everything else. Uh, but ultimately Niall is Niall and he, uh, and Unfortunately, he's he's going to be late. He's going to be he's going to be uh, he's going to sort of let everybody down at some stage. But we tried to get him to a place where that was as little as often as possible. And but he he's a great guy. He's a lovely lovely kid. But he just needs to. <laughs> he doesn't understand the opportunity that he's had um, because he because he's not taking it and and that's where and that's where some somewhere along the line the penny has to drop with him but it, it doesn't seem to drop at any time on the other hand a guy who you've played with at West Brom and Southend who when I've spoken to guys that have played with him to describe him as a sort of gentle giant as such Mark Antoine Fortuny what was he like yeah brilliant he was he was uh he was really good like like you said the uh, the gentle giant, the the guy who just goes about his business every day, um, doesn't say overly too much to anybody or or do anything, but just uh, just an all round lovely, lovely man, um, and and someone who who came in at Southend, um, done done really well as well actually for because he didn't play that often. He played, he he probably played. 30 or 40 games in, in the time spell that he was there, but um, uh, he sort of played second fiddle to to myself and to Niall uh, a little bit. But then when Niall was injured, he, he came in and, and done really well. And um, actually just a really, really lovely, lovely person. You, you talked about Phil Brown in that first season, having lots of ups. The second season, there's a few downs. He's replaced by by Chris Pibble, who's now one of the lead coaches with the, the Tottenham Hotspur Academy. What was Chris Pibble like to work with? Because I remember him, I think it was Charlton was the club that he was doing a good job and he was hard done by and he was a, he was a player and a play, he was a respected player there and he was a guy who had a lot of goodwill within football. So what was he like to work with? Was he the sort of guy who was a lot quieter compared to Phil? Yeah, but, but Chris was 
really, really good, actually. Really good. Um, came in at a time where, <clears throat> uh, like you said, Phil Brown, was, we'd sort of lost our way a little bit. Um, results weren't going our way. And then then Chris came in and and tried to change things as, as quick as we can, but without disrupting anything um, too much. Uh, we, you know, we started doing video analysis. We started doing all the stuff that you would expect a professional club to do regularly. Um, and training just went up a level, uh, purely and simply on the basis that one, you wanted to impress uh, a new manager, but two, we still felt in the dressing room that we had enough in the dressing room to to be successful. And and Chris came in and and we went on another big run again. I think it was three defeats in in 18 or 20 or something like that and and we missed out towards the end but we as soon as Chris came in we had three or four of the of the top teams in league one at the time and and we won every game uh we were we were so hard to play against um and hard to beat but he was uh he was actually really good to be fair to him he was uh like I say nice man nice nice good coach as well um and uh yeah, he was uh, ultimately a, re- a really good guy. You were the top scorer for the club in the first three seasons, which <laughs> sums up the fact that you, you, you'd found a, a club where you were comfortable in, in getting into those positions and taking the opportunities that came your way. Kevin Bond was another guy who who managed you at the club, synonymous for being an assistant manager, if we're, if we're brutally honest. Um, he worked with Harry Redknapp an awful lot. W- was he a natural manager as such, or w- was he the sort of guy that you could, tell in, in a nice way that he was an assistant maybe more than a number one yeah I think the thing is with with Kevin Bond is that he came in it was his first real crack at management and I think he wanted to come in and we were in a really bad way at the time we'd lost again we'd lost our way and um, we were sort of heading towards relegation and um, but we needed to to really buck our ideas up and um he came in and he wanted to try and play total football. He, we were in a relegation scrap and he wanted to try and play total football, passing out from the back and getting your midfield players to drop into sort of, you know, fullback positions and dictate and, and getting your fullbacks high and all that sort of stuff. And we were sort of sat in the dressing room thinking, we don't need this at the minute. We, we need to start that in pre-season and and build from there but we need to be really hard to play against and and win games of football just not lose games of football and his first game we had Fleetwood away and we drew 1-1 and we gave a penalty away in the last like two minutes or so um or sorry 2-2 I think it was um and uh and we sort of just took a little bit of momentum from that we we sort of looked in the dressing room and thought we're gonna need to pull something out of the hat if we're going to survive here. Um, and, you know, we end up surviving on the last day of the season, which was great. But um, I just think we we sort of looked from within then instead of taking a lot of, uh, a, a lot of what Kevin Bond was uh, in terms of his training sessions, in terms of the playing style, we sort of didn't go against it, obviously, because you have to go with what the manager says. But we, um, we looked from within and was like, Hard to beat is first and foremost. Winning games is what we need to do, not not making five hundred passes, um, because that's not that's not what football is about. Um, it's about scoring goals and keeping goals out at the other end. 
The last question on Southend I've got for you, and you can feel free not to answer this question. I don't want to put you in a spot with this, but your last manager was Saul Campbell. Saul's been very vocal about the fact that he looks at, for instance, Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard and, and sees them being given opportunities at the time. It was Lampard at Derby and, and Stephen Gerrard up in Scotland at Rangers. And, and he said a few times that he believes he's good enough to to manage at a very high level. He believes his next job should be in the championship, as he's went on record as saying in recent months. What was he like as a coach and, and as a person? Because I can understand his ambition and I can understand why um, it's important to have that ambition, but at times it, it can rub people up the wrong way and can can come across a wee bit arrogant at times. How did you find him as an individual? Well, first and foremost, I'd say that if uh, in the jobs that he's had in the was it Macclesfield and and Southend, um, it the results would say for itself that uh, he's he probably doesn't deserve a chance in the in in the championship. Um, so he's been given two jobs, um, not been very successful either. So why would why would somebody then look at him and and give him a job at uh, a championship level? Um, so that would be the first thing I'd say. Confidence, absolutely, very confident in what he wants to do. Um, thinks that he should be a championship manager that I've got no problem with that whatsoever. Um, but ultimately when, when you're given a chance at any level, you, you know, you have to do, you have to do well to, to get your next, your next chance. Um, and listen, Frank Lampard was very, uh, very lucky enough to, to get an opportunity at Derby. If, if that had been Sol Campbell, would he have had success? Who knows? yet to be decided on that. Um, but Gerard was in at Liverpool's under 18s or under 16s at the time before he took the Rangers job. So he had a, he had a chance of, of doing a little bit of coaching, a bit of management at, uh, at Liverpool before going up to Rangers. And, and obviously what he's done at Rangers so far has been incredible. Um, so Sol just needs to, to find a club somewhere if he wants to carry on with management, um, find a club somewhere and, uh, um, and be successful and then let his coaching do the talking, let his team be successful. And then obviously if then a, a, a championship job or better, better job comes up, then go for that and then try and be successful that don't, don't try and get his success based on what other people are doing. That's not, that's not very good. Last couple of questions for you. Um, we've talked about your career in England. We've talked about the new challenge in Australia, best players you've played with and your toughest opponents. Uh, best players I played with, obviously, I'd say Robbie Keane was probably the best player I played with in terms of goal scoring ability and and just thinking ahead of of what's happening. He could see things uh, things happening two or three steps ahead of everybody else. So I'd say he was probably the best uh, the best player I played with. Um, played played against. It's very difficult because obviously I've gone. Uh, into the Premier League and you come up against the, the John Terry's, the Ferdinand's, the, you know, the Gerrard's and um, the Suarez's and all that sort of stuff in, in football, it, it becomes, uh, it becomes too difficult to, to say uh, in that sense. And then obviously even at international level, you go into the Euros and you're coming up against the likes of Ramos and PK and, and Xavi and Iniesta and Pirlo and, you know, the likes of, 
when you play in those sort of games. So it's, it was very, very difficult to um, to to pick one out because it's uh, it, you've come up against so many good quality players. And the last question I've got for you, based on the managers and coaches that you've worked with, you've had a real rich experience of football so far. You're obviously still playing and still young to play for a, another fair few years yet, but you played in League One and scored a lot of goals. You went into the Premier League within 18 months. You've played international football. You, you've played at various levels, now playing abroad as well. Will we see Simon Cox, the manager, one day? Is that something that you would like to do? Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm about to finish off my, uh, my A licence uh so once that's all got all the the all clear that that's all good and and I can uh have that in my back pocket but uh ultimately want to continue playing for another year or two um and then come back to the UK and um and link up with with a club and um and go into whether that be as part of a a coaching staff at first team level or go in as a, as someone in the academy and, and help develop and, and nurture young, young players for a first team. And uh, if that's the role that I have to go down, then, then I'm happy to do that. But ultimately coaching and management is the, uh, is the ultimate game. And, um, and that's where I want to go to. Well, fingers crossed you'll be a coach and a manager in the next few years and we can have another chat at that point. Simon, it's been a, a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure, no, no problem. Thank you. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells